This is our, I believe, fifth week in the book of Hebrews, and we're taking it slower. If you've been here for the last year, we know we, you know we kind of sprinted our way through Acts and Daniel, and that was for a very particular reason, because there are some amazing things that we can see and learn by looking at broader sections of Scripture at one time and see the big picture. We're taking a more detailed survey, survey through Hebrews, in part because it's a very detailed book. But at the same time, as we continue to go through it from time to time, we're going to make sure that we take that step back, see the bigger picture. And so even as we get into Hebrews chapter 2, verses eight, uh, 10, 11, and 12 today, you have to understand that it's part of the whole discussion of chapters 1 and 2. After taking all of chapter 1 to show us how Jesus is more glorious than the angels, he makes a shift starting in chapter 2, verse 5. And he says, okay, Jesus, this one who's more glorious than the angels is also the one who's become like us in every way. He's going to relate Jesus to us now. But in order for us to understand what it means that Jesus became like us, we need to understand who us is, who we are. And so that's what he does in the first part that we looked at last week. He looks not just at who we are now as humans, but especially who God intended us to be in the beginning and who, by the grace of God, we may yet be again. And to do that, he took us to Psalm 8 in verses 6 through 8 of of, of Hebrews chapter 2. He quotes from Psalm 8, David's famous meditation on the glory of creation, where he says, compared to the sun and the moon and the stars that you put out there by your fingers, why do we even matter to you? But yet you've crowned us with glory and honor, and you've placed everything under the, the, the dominion of humans. He quotes this verse, and maybe for some of you guys, you tripped over it a little bit last week, because maybe especially if you've spent time in the book of Hebrews before, you see the way that the author takes Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus, and so you go, okay, Psalm 8's talking about Jesus. But what I tried to do last week was take us back and look at Psalm 8. We read it together on our own to see that before this verse was specifically applied to Jesus, it was written about us as humanity, about God's intention for us as his image bearers to rule over the works of his hands. Not in our own authority, but because we are the image bearing representatives of his authority. He says in, in verse 8 of, of Hebrews 2 that we looked at last week. He talks about how in putting everything under in subjection to humanity, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we don't see that. We don't see humanity perfectly, benevolently ruling over God's creation. That relationship has been broken and marred and twisted and perverted by sin. We don't rule as we ought to, and we do not rule to the extent that we were intended to. We don't see that yet. But like we talked about last week in verse 9, Here's what we do see. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's what we talked about last week, that Jesus in his incarnation, in becoming man, he came to be the humanity that we were always intended to be. Then he took on the curse of death on our behalf by the grace of God. And now, verse 9 tells us, because of his suffering to the point of death, God has crowned him with glory and honor. He is now exalted back to the right hand of God the Father. And as we'll see this week, look at verse 10. He's bringing many sons to glory. 
That's what we're going to focus on this week. What does it mean that, that now through the suffering of Jesus, he has made a way for many sons to be brought to glory? Look at, if you will, read with me verses 10, 11, and 12. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. As we look through these verses today, I want to focus on two main things. There's two main questions. If you're taking notes, write these down. In order to bring many sons to glory, in verse 10, what does it mean that Jesus had to be made perfect through his suffering? What does it mean for Jesus to be made perfect? Not just that Jesus is perfect, but what does it mean for him to be made perfect? And then the second question in verse 11, what does it mean that he is not ashamed to call us brothers? Both of these two themes, the perfecting of Jesus and this idea of him no longer ashamed of us, are massively important as we continue to move through the book of Hebrews. These two themes are going to continue to come up throughout the letter. And so my purpose this morning is not to fully unpack these for us, but more, if you will, to, to um, it's like looking at a map before you go on a hike, like get your bearings, set your compass in the right way so you know where you're going. Hopefully help us establish these categories of thinking so that as we move through, as we move further into the book, we'll know where we're going. Practically, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit shorter amount of time in that first question about the perfecting of Jesus so that we can spend a little bit extra time in that idea of what does it mean for him to not be ashamed of us. So, you ready? Make sense? All right, if not, it, hopefully by the end it will. If not, come let me know. All right, so let's move through verse 10. Kind of look, let's look at it phrase by phrase. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their perfection, or the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There's three different people or groups, if you will, that are spoken of in this verse. So let's look at each one of them. The beginning of verse 10, who is he for whom and by whom all things exist? Who's that talking about? God. God the Father. We, and you'll see that as we move through. How about this? In bringing many sons to glory. Who are the many sons? Us. Okay. It was fitting that God, for God, that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. And by the way, the way, that's important. Some of you guys last week, if you tripped over this idea of humans created for glory to rule, when you see that from Psalm 8 and see that everything was intended to be under people's feet, we have to be careful there because we can easily confuse and think that we're the point of all of it. That God created everything for us. But here's what it says. No. Who does everything exist for? It exists for him. He made it all, and he made it all for himself. And not only that, we're included in that all. Even we, in our glorious position, our intended position of ruling over God's world, exist for him. So it was fitting that he, the one who is the point of everything, God the Father, in bringing us to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Who's the founder of our salvation? Jesus. Okay. Why did Jesus need to be made perfect? It doesn't say that he is perfect, that he, had, he was made perfect. Does that make sense? Because think about it this for a second. 
Was, does this mean that there was some sort of imperfection in Jesus that needed to be perfected? Wasn't he already the perfect son of God? Here's where we need to be careful because oftentimes when we look, especially because this word perfect is used throughout the book of Hebrews, sometimes in relationship to Jesus and oftentimes in relationship to us. And when we look at us, we can look at it and say, yes, there is imperfection in us that needs to be remedied. There is moral wrongness, moral imperfection that needs to be changed. But I actually don't think that throughout this whole book, the writer of Hebrews is talking about us being morally perfect. Because he's also not saying that about Jesus. Jesus had no need of moral perfecting. We're going to see that especially a couple times throughout this letter where it talks about Jesus as this one who had no sin. So what does it mean that he was made perfect in this verse? Let me explain this to you. Hopefully this isn't too technical. I talked it through with my wife and she went, okay, here's where you lost me. So I cut that part out. And so hopefully, (laughs) hopefully this works. All right. There's a Greek word that's used in verse 10. It's the word teleao which means to make perfect, to make complete. And this word is used in a variety of ways, both in ancient Greek literature and even in Scripture, not always in relation to moral perfection. There was a British scholar that I came across who was very helpful in this way, a man named David Peterson, who back in the 70s wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on, this, on the way that this word is used in Hebrews. This whole thing was about how this word to make perfect is used in the book. Now, I didn't read his whole dissertation. I don't think I would have understood most of it. But in another book, he wrote a chapter where he basically summarizes his view. And I found it so compelling and fitting with the text where basically he says this. The way that this verb to make perfect is used in the book of Hebrews is not referring to moral perfection, but to what he calls vocational perfection. In other words, it's the, refilling, uh, it's the fulfilling of requirements or qualifications in order to play a certain role. Does that make sense? The fulfilling of requirements or qualifications in order to play an intended role. For instance, one of the things I love about our church, I'm grateful for, is that we have a lot of first responders in our church. We've got a lot of police officers, sheriff's deputies, firefighters, and I'm so grateful for you guys. I love getting to rub shoulders with you guys. But let me take you back, if you will, to when you first embarked on this journey of working as a firefighter or law enforcement. To even get in the door, there were probably multiple rounds of background checks and interviews and polygraphs and all that just to get into the academy. But you weren't done yet. Then you had to go through the academy, right? You had your written tests and your tests on the actual skills of your work, physical tests, psychological tests, all of that. Until finally, on graduation day, you were completed and you were able to now function in your vocation. Not that you knew everything. There was still a lot left to learn. But you had been vocationally qualified for your job. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about here in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot more I could go into it. But let me ask you this question. If this word perfecting talks about being perfected in order to play a role... What role or what, what role is described of Jesus in verse 10? What is it said that he's, he's his, the role that he's supposed to play? What was that? The founder of our salvation. You see that? The founder of our salvation. That word founder there is really interesting. It could also be translated as pioneer or trailblazer. The idea of a founder makes me think of someone who lays the foundation of a building that's built, whereas opposed to a pioneer, a trailblazer, 
It has this idea of a journey, that, that a path needs to be cut through wilderness to get to an intended destination. And so one guy does it first, not so that he's the only one there, but so that others can follow after him. As a matter of fact, in the Net Bible translation, that's what they say, that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. He blazed the trail so that we might follow after him. But in order to be perfected in his role as trailblazer, he needed to blaze the trail, right? I think that's what that idea of him being perfected. He was perfected as the trailblazer of our salvation when he did cut that path for us to follow after. And how did he do that? How did he blaze that trail? Through suffering, exactly. See that in the end of the verse? It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in order to bring us to glory, vocationally perfected Jesus as the trailblazer of our salvation through his suffering and death. That the path to our salvation was carved through the suffering of Jesus. That Jesus went to the grave in order to cut and blaze a trail out the other side of the grave so that we might follow after him. That's what it means that Jesus is, was perfected through suffering, to be the pioneer of our salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, let's move to verse 11. Verse 11 says that, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. For he who sanctifies or makes holy and those who are made holy all have one source. I'm going to deal with this one briefly because we're going to get into it more next week. But this idea of the one who sanctifies us, Jesus, and we who are made holy have the same source, it's talking about Jesus' incarnation, him taking on flesh and becoming human. It's clarified as we get down into verse 14 where it talks about how since the children share in flesh and blood, he took on the same things, the same human body, the same humanity as us. In the Greek, it literally says they're all of one. We're all of the same stuff. And because Jesus is of the same stuff as us, and because he blazed the trail for our salvation through his suffering, he's able to sanctify us, to make us holy. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. And so he ends verse 11 by saying, that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That verse, it's quoted there in verse 12. It comes from Psalm 22, one of the most obviously prophetic psalms about Jesus. It's the psalm that starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes through in poetic detail what's described as a scene of crucifixion written by David a thousand years before Jesus came. We can't deal with Psalm 22 in detail, but if you're, again, if you're taking notes, write it down in the margin. Go back this week, read Psalm 22. It is harsh and beautiful and glorious all at the same time. But the writer's point, after talking about Jesus' suffering, him, him blazing the trail for salvation through suffering, he hearkens back to a psalm that foretold Jesus' suffering. But he hearkens back to the turning point in the psalm, where this one who has suffered greatly at the hands of his enemies rejoices that God has delivered him through suffering. And he says, therefore, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and I will sing your praise in the congregation. He says, guys, 
If Jesus is the one being talked about in Psalm 22, we're the ones being talked about in this verse. We're the brothers over whom he declares God's name. Now, what I want to do in these last few minutes together is focus on that last phrase. Okay, why is Jesus not ashamed of calling us brothers? When we think of the idea of someone says, I'm not ashamed of that, it's kind of more like, hey, you can look down on me for it, but I choose not to. Only God can judge me, something like that. Or no matter what everybody else says, I say differently. I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is something so much more powerful. I think this right here is a massively important verse, but it's one that we can tend to slip by and go, oh, that's nice. He calls us brothers and he's not ashamed of us. Oh, Jesus is so good. But I think the reason why we can skip by it is because probably for most of us in our context, we don't view life or the gospel largely through the lenses of shame or its counterpart, honor. But if you've been paying attention, as we've been in Hebrews 2, they've come up a number of times, those ideas. Look back at verse 7. In Psalm 8, you have crowned him, speaking of humanity, with glory and honor. Verse 9. Jesus, as that representative man through his suffering, is now crowned with glory and honor. Verse 10, God is bringing many sons to glory through Jesus. And then here in verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Do you see how this is repeated? That all of this whole passage is is about the honor that God intended for us, the shame we came under through sin, but how now Jesus has made a way where he's no longer ashamed of us. So here's what I want to say to you. This is very important. It is, it is so worth us spending time and paying attention here because while honor and shame may not be the primary paradigm through which we view life, understand that honor and shame is the primary paradigm for the writer of Hebrews and his audience. This whole book is about the contours of honor and shame and community relationships. And not only that, honor and shame is the primary paradigm for viewing life for many cultures around the world today. And I would even say its influence is growing here in the United States. And the gospel, here's, get this, the gospel addresses the ideas of honor and shame just as much, if not more so, than it addresses the ideas of guilt and innocence, which we tend to be a little bit more familiar with. So it's important that we take time to acquaint ourselves and orient ourselves, at least a beginning with concepts of honor and shame, because if for no other reason, then it will allow us to see Jesus more clearly. It'll allow us to see his redemptive work more fully, and we will have even greater reason to praise him. Now again, as I'm I'm sharing these ideas, understand that this is like speaking a third language that you're just learning. Just over the last few years, I've been, God's begun to open my eyes and use different people in my life to open my eyes to the way that God speaks to these ideas of honor and shame. And so I want to share with you at least some starting points to acquaint ourselves with this because the rest of the book, we'll be able to get into this even more. There's a book that's been really helpful to a lot of us in this journey of seeking to understand how the gospel speaks to honor and shame. It's written by a guy named Jason Georges, and it's called The 3D Gospel. And he goes through... Our Western cultural context, more uh, honor-shame context, and even contexts that are more oriented around power and fear, and shows how 
We don't have to try to finagle our understanding of the gospel into those cultural contexts. We need to broaden our understanding of the gospel so that we can see how it already speaks into those contexts. I would highly recommend that book to you. Again, it's called The 3D Gospel. I'm going to show you a couple quotes from it. Jason also runs a website that's called honorshame.com, which is so helpful. He has some cool videos and blog posts and things like that that are so helpful. But let me start with just a few quotes of he. Again, he's a guy who grew up here in the States but ministered for years in much more of an honor-shame context and came back and went, whoa, guys, did you ever notice in Scripture how much it speaks to this? And he's devoted this part of his life to helping us as the church in America broaden our understanding of the gospel. And here's how he identifies honor and shame. He says, honor is a person's social worth, one's value in the eyes of the community. Honor is when other people think well of you resulting in harmonious social bonds in the community. Shame, on the other hand, is a negative public rating. The community thinks lowly of you. You are disconnected from the group. Go to the next one. And speaking of shame further, he says that shame means inadequacy of the entire person. While guilt says, I made a mistake, shame says, I am a mistake. And since the problem is the actual person and not just what they've done, the shamed individual is banished from the group. Therefore, to avoid such rejection, people mask their shame from others. Let me break this down for you. In other words, because the things that you do reflect not only on you, but also on the community that you're a part of, when you do something that is wrong in that group, you feel an intense need to cover that, to hide that shame, so that it does not bring shame upon the group or threaten your participation, your position in that group. Does that make sense? Because if your shame is made known, the group must protect their dignity by separating you from them. Does that make sense? This may be foreign to some of us, but let me take us to a very familiar story from the Bible and show you how, check it out, this is, this is here. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 and 2. At the very end of Genesis 1 and 2, there's the verse that makes the junior higher inside of all of us chuckle. You know what it is? Verse 25, can you put it up there? And the man and his wife were both naked. <laughs> and they were not ashamed. Do you see that word there? They were naked and they were not ashamed. Genesis is written after sin has already come into the world. It was given through Moses. Many, many, like a thousand or so years later, more than that. And he's speaking back into this time saying, hey guys, all we know is life with shame in the picture. But understand that for them, there was no shame. They didn't even know about it. They were naked and it wasn't about like not being okay with showing your private parts. It was the sense of nothing needed to be hidden. There was nothing that would make you vulnerable or put relationships at risk. There was only honor and harmony between the man and his wife and their God. There was no shame. Skip over to Genesis 3. The serpent comes in and tempts the woman, and the woman and the man eat the fruit. And what happens to them? Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Let me put this one up. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All of a sudden, as soon as sin has entered the picture, it is now not safe. I have to cover something. Even with so lame a covering as fig leaves. 
And then when God, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, it says, they hid themselves in the garden from him. I have to hide my shame because now this relationship is at risk. Do you see that? Not only that, look what happens at the end of Genesis 3. God lays out all of the realities of what the curse of death is going to look like for humanity. And here's what he says at the end of uh, Genesis 3 in verses 21 and 23. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See that? He makes them a better covering. This is gracious. This is kind of our God. But do you see how it also underscores the reality that something must be covered? That there is now shame and it needs to be covered over. Not only covered over, but it needs to be separated. So you see in verse 23, he sends them out of the garden. He sends them away from the Garden of Eden to preserve his honor. Do you see that? Let me show you one more quote from Jason George's, how he talks about how we deal with shame once it comes into the, the picture. He says, A shamed person, unlike a guilty person, can do very little to repair the social damage. Correcting shame requires a sort of remaking or transformation of the self. One's identity must change. Because it's not just that I've done wrong, I am wrong. So I must change at that level of identity. And he says, more often than not, a person of higher status must publicly restore honor to the shamed. Just like the father graciously did for the prodigal son in Luke 15. He runs to his son and clothes him and puts a ring on his finger and exalts him at that banquet. The son could not restore his honor on his own. He could only bear the shame. It took one of a higher position to come and restore him. And is that not exactly what we see in the book of Hebrews? Why does the writer take all that time in Genesis chapter 1 to exalt Jesus above everything, including the angels? So that we might see that he, that exalted son of God, is the one who's come to us to do what we could not do for ourselves. To raise us out of our shame. To restore our honor by first taking our shame and conquering it through the cross. The shame of what we've done. The shame of what those who've gone before us have done. Even the shame of what has been done to us. Because you see, this is one of the things that's different between guilt and shame. I carry the guilt for the things that I have done. But I can carry the shame for what others have done to me. Do you see that? Whether I was right or wrong in the situation, when it was done to me, I carry the shame of that. And some of you in here know exactly what I'm talking about. You have had some horrific things happen to you in your life. People have treated you in despicable ways, and even though you were the victim in those situations, you carry the weight of it around with you all the time. It just speaks to you that because something wrong was done to me, now there is something wrong with me. That's shame. And if that's how you came in this morning, weighed down either by the shame of what you've done or even the shame of what's been done to you throughout your life, please hear me this morning. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what it's like to carry the shame of despicable things that are done to you by others. 
I mean, think about his crucifixion. I think we've all probably spent time at a Good Friday service that turns our stomach a little bit because somebody goes into great detail about the physical pain of the lashings and crucifixion and all the things that happened to Jesus. And for some reason, we tend to fixate on the physical pain. And I don't mean to downplay that at all. But what I want to help you see is that everything that happened to Jesus in his crucifixion was not primarily about causing him physical pain. It was about shame. It was about shaming him. He was spat upon. He was mocked. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and paraded him naked through the streets of the city carrying a cross. Then they nailed him to that cross on the top of a garbage heap outside the city. Every single thing that happened to Jesus in his crucifixion was all about the people looking at him and saying, you are worthless and shameful and we want nothing to do with you. And so we are separating ourselves from you and heaping shame upon you in order to preserve what we think is our own self-made honor. And Jesus, the glorious Son of God, he allowed them to heap shame upon shame on his noble, glorious head. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he let them do that to him? Can you put up that slide? Hebrews 12.2 speaks to this. And again, hopefully you see this verse, which is familiar, perhaps in a different light. The writer tells us to look to Jesus, the founder, the, the pioneer and perfecter. Oh, wait, those are the same two things we looked at in verse 10. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? Jesus endured all of that shame and separation and being cast down by his people because he knew that on the other side of the shame of that cross, there was joy and there was glory and there was a throne. Through Jesus' resurrection, he fully defeated and overcame the shame that was heaped upon him. But not only did he overcome his shame, but for those of us who trust in him, he overcomes our shame on that cross as well. The shame of what you've done. The shame of what those who come, have come before you have done. The shame of what has been done to you has been removed and defeated by Jesus' victory on the cross. Do you see that? And not only that, look back at verse 10. Not only has Jesus defeated our shame, but he has made a way to bring up many sons to glory with him. That's why in verse 11, the writer can say, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. There was shame and there was the need to separate himself from us, but he has now taken care of that shame and welcomes us back into God's family and gives us the full rights and privileges as sons and daughters of God. I'm going to put that last quote up from Jason George's again one more time, where he talks about the reality that a shamed person can do very little to re restore their situation, but one of a higher status must come and publicly restore them. That's exactly what happened to Jesus after his crucifixion. Look back at verse 9. You see what happened? He is shamed and belittled through the cross, yet through the suffering of his death, 
His Father, the one of greatest glory and honor, of highest status, restored him and crowned him with glory and honor. And then Jesus, being restored to the right hand of God, he looks down at us and he says, okay, now that I've been restored and exalted, come with me, brother, sister. You get that? We are not only forgiven, we are adopted and accepted and given the full inalienable rights and privileges as God's children. That is honor that we do not deserve. But as I said before last week, it's not about what we deserve. It's about what our Father desires to give us. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The son says, I don't deserve to be called your son. Can I at least be the slave? But the father runs to him and robes him and rings him and seats him at the seat of honor at his banquet table. It's not about what he deserved. It's about what his father desired. And that's exactly what our God has done for us through Jesus Christ. He has exalted us and given us glory that we do not deserve. And may we never, ever stop praising him for that glorious, honoring grace. Amen? couple thoughts as we go. Listen up. If you came in here today weighed down by shame, whether it's shame of what you've done or what's been done by your family in the past or what's been done to you throughout your life, please hear me. Jesus bore our shame on the cross. Maybe today is the first time that you've seen that clearly. Jesus' ability not just to take away the guilt of what you've done, but the shame of what you've carried from what's happened to you in your life. Maybe today is the day that for the first time you choose to trust in Jesus as the one to bear and take away and remove your shame. Or maybe you've walked with Jesus for years, but you've held on to that shame of your former life or shame of sin that still seems to have you trapped. Please hear me. You do not need to carry that shame a moment longer. Jesus has conquered it. Jesus has risen from the dead and we can now lay down that shame and let it die in the death of Jesus. Man, if that's something you've never understood before and you want to come talk with somebody, I'd love to welcome you up to the prayer meeting in just a second. But let me say this. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, do you see what he calls us there at the end of verse 11? Brothers, sisters even. If he's the one who called the world into existence, he said, son, and boom, there's the son. If he calls you brother, if he calls you sister, that's who you are. That's who you are. Believe today that you have a new identity as a child of God because Jesus says so. Believe that what he says about you is more important than what other people say about you or what you want them to think of you. If there is sin in your life that is at odds with this new identity as a son or daughter of God, confess it and turn from it and ask God to help you to become in practice what he already declares you to be. Amen? And lastly, if God calls us brothers and sisters, if Jesus, our our Savior, calls us brothers and sisters and God calls us sons and daughters, that's how we ought to view one another as well. We are the honored sons and daughters of God, and how dare we belittle that which God paid such a great price to honor.
My prayer for us as a church is that we become a family that learns how to do this well together, how to press in close to each other even when it's hard so that we might honor and love one another just as our Father has honored and loved us. I'm going to welcome the worship band to come up to the stage. Again, if you would like someone to come pray with you at the prayer, and we'd love to do that for you. But if you will, please join me in prayer in asking God to teach us what it means that he's honored us. Amen? Jesus Christ, you are the one who conquers not only the guilt and punishment of our sin, but the shame and dishonor and relational separation of it. You have now done this to bring us near to God so that we might draw near to you in the relationship and the glory and the honor that we were created from the beginning to have. Would you teach us, Lord? Would you expand our eyes from maybe the, 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 the limited view of the gospel we've had till now to see the depth and richness and contours of your glorious grace, that we might both praise you more and be able to walk more specifically with the people that you bring into our lives who need to know about your glorious grace. Would you do this by your spirit that you've put within us to confirm that we are your sons and daughters? I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.